Hello, everyone. Welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren. Please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. You can also support the show by going to unsafespace.com. Recently, Carrie and I had the opportunity to sit down with Leonidas Johnson. Uh, Leonidas is a political and cultural commentator and host of the podcast Informed Dissent. He's also a speech-language pathologist, as well as a theater and film actor, writer, director, and composer. He's known for his common-sense approach to a variety of hot-button topics, uh, including race, uh, gender, economics, politics, and uh, the general role of government in our society. He encourages others to embrace the importance of individual liberty and to do their own research and challenge the narrative. So some good, good advice from him. Uh, you can follow Leonidas on Twitter at Leonidas Johnson. That's L-E-O-N-Y-D-U-S Johnson, J-O-H-N-S-O-N. We'll put that Twitter handle below in the show notes and his website, LeonidasJohnson.com. You can also find it Informed Dissent, his podcast, basically anywhere that you consume podcasts, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, all that kind of stuff. Leonidas, thank you for joining. Welcome to Unsafe Space. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I was telling you before we start recording that you are one of our most requested guests. So everyone in the chat's going to be happy when this one comes out. So thank, <laughs> thank you so much for being so patient. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate that. And that's just, it's just wild. So thank you to everybody who was requesting me. So I, I hope I live up to expectations. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think of myself as, you know, some, some big figure or icon or anything. So it's wild that people, people wanted me to be on here. So I, I appreciate it. So thank you. I know a lot of people know you from Twitter, but I really like your new podcast that you've been doing. I don't know, new is the right, is it still new? Yeah, it's new. I mean, we, yeah, I started about back in August. I'm in about 23 episodes in, so it's it's still new. Yeah. And, you know, it's really just focused on uh, pushing back against the narrative and taking hot button topics and uh, twisting them and saying, okay, like, well, this is what we're being told. So what's the actual truth? Let's look underneath and find the, find the actual truth. So it's, it's been an, it's been an interesting process and, uh, still learning. So it's still, still pretty new, but it's been a good experience so far for sure. Can you tell me a little bit about, this is a, uh, I've asked this question of other guests before, but you, uh, in your bio says you're, it says you're libertarian mm. and this is, I, I always love to just get people people's opinions on how do they define libertarianism because it's still something that I can't wrap my head around completely. And since yeah. I left the social justice left, though, a lot of people told me, you seem like a libertarian. Yeah. So how, how do you define that? What does that mean to you? I, I think you're going to get a different answer based on which libertarian you're talking to. Every, every libertarian has their own answer. <laughs> <laughs> their own idea of libertarianism. That's why we're always in. And that's the definition. Of <laughs> that's the definition. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it, it really all comes down to individual rights, right? Uh, you talk about property rights, individual rights, and uh, the idea of liberty and freedom. And I mean, it's right in the name, liberty, libertarianism. is the idea that we have individual liberty and that everybody should be free, at least to me, everybody should be free to do what they deem to be best for themselves and their families, as long as they're not violating somebody else's individual liberty. So the line is drawn there that, you know, as long as you're not violating somebody else's right to do what they want to do or what they deem to be best, then uh, you should be free to do what you want to do. And that's really how right. I view individual liberty and libertarianism. So why hasn't it taken off? 
as a party. <laughs> yeah. Well, the party's kind of a mess. <laughs> well, I, and like yeah. I said, uh, everybody has their own vision of libertarianism. And you have your you have your anarcho-capitalists, you have your anarchists, you have people that uh, is, is that you? I'm, I'm an ANCAP guy. You're yeah, an ANCAP? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay, no hate, no hate. <laughs> I'm more of a, I'm more of a minarchist, but that's okay. But, um, we all start I, there, man. It's yeah. Good. That's, that's what people tell me. They say you start with minarchy and then you, <laughs> you're eventually I'm, anarchist. You know, whenever I, I'll admit Carter, I've never told you this, but Every time you say the word minarchist, I think of a man that's half horse and half man. Yeah. <laughs> half, half horse and half what? <laughs> half man. Minotaur. Half horse, half man is a minarchist? No, Wait, it's a minotaur, but my head goes there. The minotaur, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I, yeah, all right. I mean, okay. it's pra practically the same, practically the same, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the party is just, it, 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 it seems so fractured and unfocused. And there's there's been some good things that have happened, but uh, there there's just been too much just foolishness and incohesiveness. So I, I I wish that they would get their act together and really push uh, push onto the national stage, which we had a little bit of that with Gary Johnson, and uh, he he flubbed it, but. <laughs> You know, because they, they nominate people to, like Gary Johnson, and, and that's the, and that's the issue, right? Like we start to build momentum, and then uh, and then something ridiculous happens, and people start laughing at the party again. So uh, just as a just as a political party, it just doesn't seem it, it hasn't seemed to work, and I'm I'm not sure how to fix that other than uh, you know try to figure out if you know if everybody can get cohesive around a central idea and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we're not going to have all this infighting. We're just going to focus on a national stage and really building up our reputation and getting some respect, <laughs> which the libertarian libertarian party does not have at the moment. You know, um, it seemed to me like a miss someone on the outside kind of looking in, it seemed to me like there was a missed opportunity for the party with this last election because mm. I did start looking at the libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen, but then, you know, there were a lot of people like myself who had left the social justice left, or maybe they were never in the social justice left, but they started to see the excesses of it and um, wanted to vote in, in a way other than Democrat or Republican. Yeah. And it seemed like there was a missed opportunity because then when I looked into Joe Jorgensen, she, start, she was speaking woke and I couldn't differentiate her from the Democratic Party. Yeah, once she once she started coming out and talking about the Black Lives Matter stuff, I was I was completely done with her. And her, like her big issue was she was trying to appeal to everybody at the same time. And yes. and it became such a problem for her. And you know, she's very she's whip smart. She great great person, very very intelligent. Um on the issues she was on point uh, for the most part, but like her politics, like when just coming out and being a politician, like she couldn't do it. It was, it was, it was awful. And she just collapsed. So, and that's what I'm talking about. Like when we put these candidates out and as, as libertarian candidates, which I say, we, I'm not part of the libertarian party, but just as a libertarian, we put these candidates out there and, and they just don't match up to the Republican and Democrat. And then we have the, the other issue, which uh, the way our system is built, it's really difficult to get people to want to vote third party. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, it, people think, well, I'm throwing away my vote. I don't want to throw away my vote and then have the Democrat uh, get into office. And, or on the other side, I don't want to throw away my vote and have the Republican get into office. And 
that's a big issue. So you have this huge section of people, of voters, who would want to vote third party, but feel like that they would be sacrificing their vote. So uh, I've, I've talked about that on social media a lot. Like, how do we fix that? How do we get to a point uh, where we where people feel comfortable with uh, the third choice voting? You know? Yeah. And if we can if we can figure that out, then I think I think maybe libertarianism, the libertarian party could could be a viable party. And that's that's including some of the other third parties as well. I mean, do you think, though, it's is it is it that the libertarian party fails at execution or is that the ideas are not palatable in culture? Because I I think one of the reasons the libertarian party is a joke is mainstream media will make it a joke. They will exaggerate any kind of infighting or ridiculousness because the ideas are inimical to kind of mainstream ideas. Whereas if the same ridiculousness happens in, in the Democrats or Republicans, they'll be vilified, but not made into a joke. Here's the, here's the, here's the problem, I think, that uh, like we become a drug addict as far as government goes. You know, like we're, we become so dependent on the government that people can't really imagine uh, what it would be like if we teased ourselves apart from that is our entire lives revolve around these things. So like people will come up with different arguments when you say you're a libertarian, it's like, oh, well, who's going to build the roads? That's the favorite one. Right. And, yeah. and so they, they, there's no ability to, uh, <laughs> I see Carrie. Uh, yeah. Who is going to build the roads? But, uh, listen, I, uh, we've had that conversation early yeah. on in the podcast and Carter had to school me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I saw you had Eric July on, uh, and I don't yeah. know if you talked about that, but his his favorite thing is to say "f them roads." So, <laughs> <laughs> but but like like I said, we it, it's like we're we're so dependent on the government that in order to get to a point where we're not, it would require a detox. It would require uh, completely uh, teasing ourselves apart from it. And that's a painful process. Nobody's, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to go through the short-term pain for the long-term health, even though it's necessary for the long-term health. And so trying to convince people of that. So when you push libertarian ideas, like uh, like we need less government, we need to get government out of healthcare, we need to get the government out of schools. Uh, when you push these kind of ideas wholesale as the end, as, as the end goal, you know, and without the buildup and like the transition parts, then people have a hard time wrapping their heads around that. It's like, well, if we if we take the government out of healthcare, then then what about my grandma who's on Medicaid and Medicare, whatever? Um, what's going to happen to her? And and that's hard to combat because it's true. Like there has to be some kind of transition out of that and transitioning the government away, and so that we can get into the private sector. So I think the Libertarian Party needs to do better at that. Um, the big ideas are great, but we need to figure out the path to get to those big ideas, which will take some. Uh, take some painful transitions, unfortunately. Well, we didn't get to where we are through a massive step function from, from limited government to government overreach. It right. was a long, long, generations long process of a little bit more government, a little bit right. more government, a little yep. bit more government. And I think, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to focus on politics, that's, that, that's kind of how you have to do the march towards libertarianism, which is, by the way, why I don't care about the difference between ANCAP and, and minarchist, because I feel like when we get to a minarchist government, then we can argue about whether we need it at all. But let's just march into a minarchist, minarchist government together, because that's the direction <laughs> that we clearly need to go. Yeah. Um, but it takes a long time. It, this is a long, even just, we haven't even stopped 
making the government bigger, let alone starting to make it smaller. Right. Yeah. Spending spending keeps increasing. More government programs keep being added on in this administration. My gosh, like, who knows? Like it's going to take years. It's going to take years and years to undo the damage that this administration is doing. So, yeah, it's 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 an uphill battle for sure. But, you know, the the other side of it is that um, it, it's from a principle focus, you know, and you talk about the difference between minarchism and anarcho-capitalism. And I, I agree with you. I think that like everybody that believes in individual liberty uh, needs to come together as a unit so that we can fight this thing, especially with the, with the way that wokeism is pushing into our culture. Like everybody that's that believes in liberty at all needs to be coming together and saying, okay, yeah, we have differences, but look, we have common ground and this is where we need to come together and we need to push back against this thing. And, you know, so that those principles need to remain strong, but yeah, you're right. Like it's, it, it's not an overnight thing. It's a stepwise process. And the way that we've gotten to this point is, has been very insidious. It's been uh, almost flying under the radar and, you know, people don't, one of the things I always complain about is that people don't realize that the things that they complain about in, in politics and government uh, came from a policy that they voted for, you know, yes. a year or so ago. They don't realize it. They don't make the connection. They and yeah. that's that's such I a hard thing <laughs> because it's, it takes California, time. By the way, <laughs> California, right? That was what I was <laughs> going to say. Californians <laughs> fleeing fleeing to Texas don't realize that they're fleeing their own policies. And yeah, I'm in <laughs> Texas, and we've talked about this a lot. As I talk to people here who are moving here from California, and they just they don't make that connection. They'll spend 20 minutes telling me why they left California and all the reasons it became unlivable. And then they'll say things like, we need more California and Texas, right? And I'm like, I, no. <laughs> what? <laughs> what, like, what, what is not? And, 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 it's, and I get it. I mean, I understand it because it takes so long for these effects to happen sometimes. I mean, sometimes they're, they're pretty quick. Like, what was that, what was that uh, legislation they passed in California that uh, it, it, where uh, um, freelancers couldn't work? Yeah. AB5. AB5, yeah. So, yeah. so that was quick. That that was pretty clear that AB five was the was the result of that, but it's not always like that, and especially when you're talking about uh, economic effects uh, that take it take a couple of years to really show up, and for or at least for people to start to fill them, and then they're just like, oh, this is horrible, so we obviously need more government because <laughs> that's the yeah, answer yeah. to everything. And California's wealth is also a little bit of a curse because it provides borrowed time. Like socialism is a leech. That that needs to suck on the blood of some sort of pseudo capitalist system in order to to survive. And the wealth that's been generated in Silicon Valley over the last 20, 30 years is tremendous. And so that offers a lot of blood to just be sucked and sucked and sucked. Um, when if it if it hadn't been if it wasn't for companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these large companies that have created thousands and thousands of millionaires in the Bay Area alone, plus Hollywood. California would have been bankrupt a long time ago. You would they would have had to face their horrible economic policies a long time ago, but they can mm. get away with it because they've got this gravy train going which will eventually run out. But yeah, right. But yeah, it it, it does a great job at hiding the uh, hiding the effects. And you know, one of the things Thomas Sowell says is that you know he can't think of a worse way to make decisions than by putting them in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong. And 
that's one of the that's one of the biggest problems with just government in general, but definitely the government in California. Because if they can keep getting away with it and they're not paying any price for it at all, then what you know what's the incentivize them to stop doing it? So yep. it's an issue yep. for sure. In fact, in fact, in a lot of bureaucratic situations, it's not only a no effect for being wrong, but sometimes it's a positive effect for getting it wrong because mm. uh, if you're if you're running a department, for example and your job is to decrease homelessness and homelessness goes up, you can ask for a bigger budget. Right. No one says you failed, you're out of here. <laughs> Everyone says, oh, we need more of you. Great, beautiful, yeah. well done. Wow. Gold star. That's a, yes. that's a great yeah. way of putting it. I mean, I, I think you can see that in, in other issues as well. It's like if you are running a nonprofit or um, if you're on some kind of government board or agency that's supposed to address racism or sexism, it's like, oh, the latest polls show that racism is a bigger problem than ever. It's like, okay, well, then we need more people. That, ha mm. that happens at the universities, too. I mean, University uh, UT Austin has, last I looked, they have a diversity, inclusion, equity staff of over 100 people. <laughs> what like, are they what are they doing <laughs> what is this job so i <laughs> i said on twitter i i, I want to go undercover and i want to i want to pretend to be one of these diversity and ed, you know inclusion educators and <laughs> i want to i want to get in on this gravy train but but here's the here's the twist when i get in there i'm just going to start smashing crt critical race theory i'm just going to tear it apart but I mean, it's just like, what is what is their job? How is that your how is that your position to say like, okay, well, I'm going to judge everybody based on the race. Here we go. This is fine. We're going to fight racism with racism, and like, whose life whose whose life is being enriched in this process? And hundred and some, hundred eighty. Is that what you said? Over a hundred. I'm. It, you know what? It might be hundred eighty now. Who knows? That was a couple of years ago. It was over a hundred. Over a hundred. Yeah, yeah. That's just, I, I mean, that's madness. I mean, one, one is too many, but uh, over a hundred, that's, that's <laughs> it's so expensive too. And then they want to say, well, why is the, why is the price of education going up? Right. You know, like, wow, well, you have all these bureaucrats. They're not even teachers. They're administrative staff. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, that's, well, you know, that's the a, price of education is going down. It's the price of college that's going up. Right. I just want to be clear. Education is free. It's you can take classes from MIT online. I'm taking a class right now in nuclear physics. Oh, yeah. uh, I had to buy the book. It's free. Done. Uh, yeah. I'm going to MIT. That's free. <laughs> Education is cheap. Yeah. Indoctrination and universities are expensive. Yeah, yeah. It's the yeah, we're turning into the administrative state, right? And um, the the cost of college, the cost of universities is really driven by that is really driven by like all these administrators that they bring on. And uh, I mean, of course, the 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 idea that government can just throw out money and give everybody loans uh, if they want to major in, you know, whatever, basket weaving, I think is the common, <laughs> the common example. Or diversity, uh, equity, or and inclusion. diversity <laughs> equity, and inclusion, if they want to major. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in they're, they're paying, or the government is paying, we're paying as taxpayers, 20, Thirty, forty, sixty thousand dollars for for them to major in something that's not going to be useful in their everyday life. Then, uh, and, and jacking up the price of tuition. And then they're going to bring in more. 
diversity and inclusion officers to, <laughs> to balance out the inequities and the tuition continues to rise. And now we're in a vicious negative feedback loop and it's, it's fun times for everybody. Hey, well, I wanted to ask you. kind of making fun of us at this point. Yeah. Uh, they know yeah. it, I think. Sorry, go ahead. I, I wanted to ask you, you um, so you are someone who has a reputation for being controversial on Twitter. And <laughs> I actually don't find many of your posts controversial. It's just that the Overton window shifted to such a degree that what, what is considered um, acceptable uh, dialogue and debate and acceptable, uh, acceptable opinions has moved, but yeah. could you, could you tell us what are some of the most, what, what's maybe been the most controversial thing that you've said, or that's gotten you the most flack? Black people aren't oppressed hands down that just that statement that the idea that black people are not facing oppression in 2021, uh, you got me a huge amount of pushback and mostly from black people, but from a lot, a lot of white liberals as well. And, you know, that, I mean, the idea that, uh, like you said, the Overton window has shifted. Um, but I mean, like people that are saying things that are even left leaning are being considered to be on the alt right now. So I mean, the idea that being contra that saying something is controversial because the woke side of people are are upset about it. That's I I don't think that's very uh, very much of a feat. I think that's pretty easy to do because because they're yeah. going to be they're going to be offended by by pretty much anything you say. But yeah, the the idea that uh, that race doesn't play a significant role in in most people's life uh, as being being black in America is something that. Uh, not too many people are willing to accept. And that's probably my most controversial take. And, and we see it right now in culture with critical race theory and the whole George Floyd issue and everything that's been going on, that race uh, for a lot of people is the central focus. It's the only thing they want to talk about. It's the only thing they care about. It's the way that they view the entire world, uh, the lens they view it through. And and it's their central identity. And so when I challenge that, it makes people really uncomfortable and they, they don't like it because they feel like I'm challenging their identity and because they, it's all wrapped up together. So yeah, that's, that's always a fun one. Just, just that little simple idea that like, Hey, maybe you can do anything you want to put your, that you can put your mind to. And uh, maybe nothing's really holding you back except for yourself. <laughs> seems inspirational yeah. to me, but, <laughs> but not everybody likes to hear that. So that used to be, the you're right. That we were encouraged to deliver right in the eighties and nineties. That was the, Hey, we're, we're getting close to post-racialism. We're not there, but the generally accepted viewpoint is nothing's holding you back and everyone's got an equal, equal opportunity and they should all be treated equally. And, you know, yeah. if you were actually overtly racist, I think most people would uh, have shunned you or criticized you or ostracized you or said something like you, you couldn't get away with, with too much overt racism. But um, I, part of me, part of me thinks that I want to say that they're, that blacks aren't oppressed now, but I look at what the critical race theorists are doing and I'm thinking, well, <laughs> I don't know. They're kind of claiming that showing up on time and meritocracy and math yeah. are all white things. Right. That's kind of oppressive if you're not white. That's a, <laughs> that's a pretty horrible thing. Maybe they are being oppressed, but it's by the left. 
Yeah. Well, I say that they're oppressing themselves. That's that's the way I put it. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It is oppressive. I mean, when you're telling people that, especially kids, you're telling little kids that their skin color is a handicap, basically, and that the world is against them and that it's going to be very difficult for them to succeed. Who's actually doing the oppressing here? You know, like who's actually causing the issues? Uh, and yeah, I mean, like I said, it's, it's just all in our society. It's in, in everybody wants to view everything through race. And I'm just, I, I'm so adamant about pushing back on that because I, I don't think it's an issue. Now, a lot of people take that to mean that I say that racism doesn't exist. That's always the, the George Jordan Peterson kind of exchange with uh, yeah. what's, her, what's her name. Oh, so you're saying racism doesn't exist. No, that's not what I'm saying. Ra of course, racism exists. Racism will always exist. There will always be people who hate other people for whatever reason, for skin color, hair color, eye color, height, weight, whatever. There's always going to be those people out there. We're never going to get rid of it. Such is life. But as a systemic issue, uh, as a, an oppressive issue that's is providing a barrier to my life and keeping me from success. No, it's just not, it's not something that's actually, actually happening. It's not real. So, and people don't like it. People don't like to hear it, but it, so that, 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 that's the way it is. You know, one of the, the most recent one I heard to, to, to this point about critical race theory uh, in, in a way oppressing anyone who's not white by these these ideas that if you're not white, you can't, you know, math is racist and, and being on time is racist. The, the most recent one I heard was an article yesterday where uh, it, it was talking about Oxford and how one of the professors at Oxford wants to decolonize the music department and as part of that, there was a list of things they wanted to do, but they said that, that the music department is, is too Eurocentric and that students of color should not be forced to learn piano, that they find learning piano to be extremely distressing. And <laughs> that is so... I'm sorry, aren't some of the like best jazz pianists ever black? I don't understand. Yes. Like, what, yes. what are like, they talking like, about? Like you're playing Beethoven, you're, you're just like <laughs> weeping. <You're> like, oh, <laughs> this is awful. I feel so oppressed right now. Yeah. And it reminds you of violence against black and brown bodies. Right. <laughs> they can't. I was like, so here's a short list. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Nina Simone, Ray Charles, Fats Domino, Little Richard, Keith Jarrett, Bud Powell, Errol Garner, Oscar Peterson. I mean, you to to say that you're if you're not white, you have great distress at learning having to learn piano. It's like, it's so insulting, it's so insidious. And and I see white people who are who who probably they're well intentioned, I guess, but they 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 spread these kind of articles. Yeah. And and they and it and it's it, it it's just such a I don't know. I think I think it changes their mind. It changes the way they think and they start to view anyone who's not white as inferior, like you can't, oh, you can't do this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it definitely plants those seeds. Uh, it's very, very toxic in that way. Um, and you know, for a lot of, for a lot of white liberals and I, I just hate talking, I hate classifying people by race, but that's just what we have to do it for right now because that's the, that's the conversation. But for a lot of white liberals, uh, it, it's become more more of like a social credit, right? Like they don't really understand what's actually happening, but they're like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do in order to get social credit. And yeah. uh, so I'm going to push this article on 
you know, why Beethoven is racist. And now I look, see, I'm not racist. And it's that's a huge problem because, you know, the, the whole sheepish following lemmings, uh, the lemmings, just the follow the leader kind of idea. And, you know, people not really doing the research and really paying attention to what's actually being taught and what's actually, what the implications are. It's an issue. Yeah. But, that, but it reminds me of the, uh, the article about the hiking. Did you see that one? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the hiking isn't diverse enough. And it, and we're seeing it in like music literature now apparently hiking, uh, but all these, all these things that are mostly innocuous uh, are now considered to be racist. Like why? It's so insidious the way this critical race theory is invading our society and turning everything into a racial issue. Like I'm sure like us talking right now would be considered some form of oppression and white supremacy. <laughs> like, sure. like in some, well, we're some on matter. top of the screen. Yeah, you're, you're on, on top. the bottom of the screen. <laughs> right. So you're that's just to keep you down, man. Right. It's just to keep you down. It's yeah, we it's, have a, a, it's a microaggression. Right. In order to decolonize is this space carter agreed to let me speak 20 percent more of the time right yeah but we can also extend that to you <laughs> this is so inequitable yeah we need we need to time it at the end to make sure it's equitable because otherwise we need to bring in a diversity and inclusion officer and we need to talk okay we need to have a yeah. have a training seminar <laughs> oh you know, my you, gosh um, you've talked about this before uh about the 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 idea that it allows this ideology is a way for whites to kind of view themselves as parents and treat mm. um, people of color. To, I hate that phrase, but to right. people yeah. of color as as children in some way. Yeah. And, you know, I I sometimes hesitate to psychologize, but they psychologize us all the time. So I'm just going to ask you to psychologize a little bit. <laughs> it seems to me that that stepping into the role of a parent um, over someone who is not a child, but just because they have a different color skin is a little bit racist. There's gotta be a grain of racism. Like if someone said to me, Hey, this other person is, is less than because of the color of their skin. And you should like step into some parental role for them. That feels icky and horrible. And like, who would do that? But a lot yeah. of, maybe there is a lot of yeah. actually latent, latent racism and it's, and it's expressing itself in leftist ideology. Yeah, I I think you're spot on. It's a I wouldn't even say it's a little racist. I say it's a lot racist because you're elevating yourself above this other group of people solely based on skin color. And I've said that for a long time that like when when white liberals come and tell me this like, "Oh, you don't think you're oppressed? Well, let me tell you how oppressed you are and how much better I am because <laughs> because my skin is white. It's like, oh, oh, okay. So you have all this privilege that I don't have because your skin is white. So you're elevating yourself above me. You don't even know me. You don't know my story. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know, uh, you know, what what um, privileges I have. You don't know where I grew up. You don't know anything about me. But you're making these judgments based solely on my skin color and thinking that you're somehow above me. <laughs> and, and so like that's that's the very definition of racism. So and it's not necessarily malicious in that sense that uh, when we think about racism as as hating somebody else because because of their different skin color. But it's just the simple viewing somebody else differently and making snap judgments about them based solely on their skin color. They, that's, that's 
just as big as a problem is I'd almost prefer the person that says, I hate you because you're black, you know, <laughs> because it's honest. The, yeah, it's honest. And the other person is is doing it under the guise of helping you. And, and you're right to come back to the paternalistic thing. Uh, it, it definitely is infantilizing the way that they approach it. And, and like I said, elevating themselves above as like this parent, like, Oh, I'm a white savior. I need to take care of you. Uh, because you're just this poor little black man who can't do anything in society because you're so oppressed. And I feel sorry for you because you're not as good as me. It's the, <laughs> it's the benevolent tyrant that C.S. Lewis is about. But that know? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, and I'm, I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but the, the old idea that he would prefer uh, prefer the robber barons. Right. And yeah. rather than the benevolent tyrants. And that's that's exactly what it is. I, I just posted on Twitter the other day that uh, my th I had theater friends because I do acting, mm -hmm. and uh, my theater friends basically just turned on me once they found out that I, I rejected the racial victimhood narrative. And they said things like that. They said things like, "Oh wow, like you're you're betraying your people." Yeah. You know, oh, um, like well, I'll fight for you even if you don't fight for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, why? Where? Like we've known each other for years, <laughs> and and now because you found found out that I reject this particular uh, viewpoint about myself that people are trying to project onto me, now all of a sudden it's a problem, and you have this entire different perception of who I am, and it's just yeah, it's racist. It's racism. That's that's exactly what it is. And you're right. It's rebranding it under the guise of progressivism. And it reminds me of what's happening in society at large right now. Because I just saw Justin Trudeau's tweets yesterday about how if you're flying back into Canada, you're going to have to take PCR tests before you board the plane. After you land, then you're going to have to be sequestered at a hotel that you pay for yourself while until they get the test results back. And then if you're negative, you can go home to quarantine at home. But if you're positive, they're going to send you to a government facility yeah. and, that, and that's not optional. And then, and then he had the gall to say at the end, this is for your own protection. You know, this good. is for your yeah. own good. That's, yeah. Those are the Always scariest words coming from the, yeah, the scariest words coming from the government. But don't worry. This is for your own good. <laughs> come on. Come on, Japanese Americans. We're going to go take, you and put you in this camp for your own good, for your own protection. It's fine. <laughs> you know, it's like the, all these things throughout history. So yeah, I saw that as well from Trudeau. And yeah, I, I retweeted it and I was, just, I, I, I can't believe that people are going along with this. Yeah. And it's like, they, they haven't read history at all. They, no. they have no concept of or seen, or seen an outbreak movie. Like, <laughs> right. have you not even well, watched it, it, these movies? Been hidden from them intentionally. Let's be clear. Like that, I think part of the part of owning the educational institutions is precisely to avoid teaching the history right. that they don't want to be taught. Carrie, you've talked about this. You didn't know anything about the failures of communism, but you knew a lot about the failures of fascism because they focused on that. But like communism is just they whitewashed it. Yeah. Um, and they're not gonna they're not gonna mention it. Um, so it's I think it's an intentional thing. Uh, something strikes me as weird. I want to run by you. I just thought of it as you were saying you were describing your friend who was like, uh, "I'm gonna fight for you even though you don't want to fight for yourself." Right? Yeah. Right. And it reminded me of 
I got yelled at, this is probably 25 years ago. I got screamed at by a feminist for holding the door um, because I held the door for her. And I thought, I wonder if that argument would have worked. Well, well, woman, I'm going to fight for you, even if you have internalized (laughs) your misogyny. I'm going to fight for you because you're just a little woman and you need me to hold the door for you. I wonder, yeah. <laughs> I wonder if that would work. Is it, any thoughts? Carrie, you were a feminist. <laughs> no, that won't work. That would not work at all. What I found, uh, what I found with these ideologies is that they don't actually believe what they say. And everything that they do and everything they say is a power play. It's just a means of manipulation in order to gain power. And I talk about this a lot that you know, there's all kinds of contradictions within their ideology. They one day they're saying something like, "Oh, Asian Americans are oppressed and under the foot of white supremacy," and then the next day they're saying, "Well, it's okay if we discriminate against Asian Americans in university applications because uh, <laughs> they're basically white people." It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, these these are yeah. not congruent thoughts, and. That's only one example. I mean, there's, there's example after example after example where they they flip the script on their on their so hold their so called um, deeply held beliefs. So it, it's really what a, what's happening in the moment, and what they yeah. think will will work to to gain power and to manipulate other people in order to gain power. So that is at the core of the social justice ideology is power. And, and, you know, every, you can see it in the way they redefine words like um, racism equals prejudice plus power, Mm -hmm. uh, sexism equals prejudice plus power. And in the way that they, when, when this used to be not very common in the mainstream, but it's become more common in the past year since social justice went mainstream. um, When, when someone dies, Eyes, they don't say rest in peace. They say rest in power. Have you seen that? Mm, yeah, I have seen that. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and it's like yeah. Oh, you don't even get a, a, a any any uh, break from social justice and death. Nope. You're still like rest in power. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, they do, but now they're going to use your death as a means to gain power. That's what they're right. going to do. So they're going to exploit your death. But yeah, rest in power. Speak truth to power. Yeah, everything everything's about power. So yeah, and if they can if they feel like they can use it to gain power, then they're gonna they're gonna do it. If they feel like that whatever it is is going to take away power, they're going to stop it, even if it yeah. goes against what they were saying yesterday. See AOC and uh, concentration camps for an example uh, on yeah. the border. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So I mean, yes. they 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 there's no consistency at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's no they don't care. Like pointing out that they're not consistent doesn't matter. Yeah, right. They, yeah, they that's the care. big thing. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. point out their hypocrisy, and it doesn't matter. It's almost the point, right? It, it's right. almost like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a hypocrite. I've actually heard people say that it's okay that they flipped like that because they're right, <laughs> because they're morally <laughs> correct. They've actually said that's not just me just making that up. Wow. People have actually said that because we're morally right to do this. And like, that's, so that's the thought process. Like, it's okay that we switch and we, we flip things around and we have no consistent principles and we just, you know, go with the wind, um, based on our feelings because we're right. And if you argue with, if you argue with us with, well, you're wrong. So there it is. End of discussion. Can you you tell us a little bit about, sorry, go ahead, Carrie, go ahead. Well, well, you, if if this is a follow up, cause I have a different, I want to take it in a different direction. So you go ahead. 
it's a little bit of a follow-up yeah because you've linked this to um you know you've talked about you've said something that always sounds crazy when people say it but is completely true and i wonder if you can talk about it which is um there is a marxist agenda underneath this and it's not about any kind of actual racial issue or anything else it's about pushing a particular political ideology and everything else is a tool yeah that. yeah and you think about what the end game is so if you're asking yourself like okay why where is this going and what is the actual end goal here and if you think if you realize that the ends justify the means to these people and that any means by any means necessary we've actually heard people say that before uh, I think it was Pelosi, right? Said that, but it's anyways, the name of an organization in Berkeley uh, called <laughs> by, "By Any Means Necessary." By any means necessary. Larka was the famous uh, Antifa type person who ran. Yeah, it. yeah. So, but I mean, that's the that's the ideology that the ends justify the means. So you're like, well, okay, well, then what is the end goal with all this stuff? And you can trace it straight to Marxism. Um, I've actually. I, I've actually compared it more to Maoism. It's more of a cultural revolution, right? Like a color revolution. And, uh, you know, really tearing down the four olds and uh, going after all the traditions and all the old ideologies and, you know, everything that existed before and building up this new supposed utopia. And, you know, it's, it's really similar to what we're seeing today. Although like you can almost draw parallels to just about every horrible ideology that's ever existed like, in history. And I said that the other day, it's like, it's like they just took history, all the history's terrible ideologies and said, okay, we're going to repeat everything and do it all at once. <laughs> Here we go. Like, that's like, like that what? diagram. Have you seen that Venn diagram of, uh, of 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, and then it's like in the center, you are here. It's, it's, you are here. <laughs> it's everything. Say <laughs> why? Like we're bringing back racism and segregation. We're bringing back Maoism. We're bringing back Nazism. Like what are we doing? Communism. Everything. Like, like why? Why is everything? But but the the ultimate goal. And you know the, the founders of Black Lives Matter. They they said themselves that they're trained Marxists. They said it out loud. Uh, so the the whole idea is collectivism. So the the whole the whole movement is based on a collective ideology, and so even if they're not going to say Marx out loud or Mao out loud, like this is what we're this is what we're heading toward, and you can make the have, comparisons, you can look at it, and you can see the see the parallels. Have you? I think noticed? one thing that's important about your analogy to Mao, though, is Maoism. One thing that strikes me about the Chinese Cultural Revolution is they played this game in which no one actually knew what was going to be wrong think and wasn't and what was wasn't going to be wrong think it was a game it was a guessing game of what would mao approve of and what would he disapprove of mm. and plenty of of mao zealots were killed and lost power because they guessed wrong about what what was what was Mao Zedong thought going to do in this situation? And he didn't want to tell anyone. He kept everything very close to his chest. And so what it does is it creates an environment in which you are hypersensitive about saying anything um, for anything outside of what's already been said for being for for fear of being like saying the wrong thing. But also you could get in trouble for not saying anything because you're not moving fast enough and guessing in the right direction that Mao wants to go. 
And I know there's no actual leader like Mao in the in the leftist movement right now, but there is that sense of we're going to change the rules constantly on you. And it's just to see if you'll jump when we say how high. It's not really because we care about what the rules are necessarily. We want to say that you're we want to see that you're paying attention to obeying. Yeah. And that's what matters the most. That that is a great point. Um, yeah, it's really, yeah, it, it becomes about capitulation more than anything. And the guessing game, yeah, the rules are always changing. And you know, one of the things. I think about is, you know, I hate using 1984 references because they seem overdone at this point, but they're so appropriate. <laughs> like It's hard not to use them. Uh, but there's also the Star Trek scene where uh, in Picard, lights, that one. Picard, yeah, the, the four, four or five lights, which was based on the, the scene with Winston uh, with the fingers. And, you know, it, it's the same thing. It's, it's not about truth. It, it's about submissiveness it's about humiliation it's about making people capitulate and even though they they know it's a lie <laughs> they, they know it's not true but making them say it anyway i mean that's how that's complete power over that person complete dominance and that it really feels like that a lot in this culture and you like like you said i think there's a little bit of that with the with the keeping things always changing and shifting too they you know you never know it's like okay well what what are the rules today and am i allowed to you know use these pronouns or am i allowed to call you a woman like what am i doing <laughs> right and it's always shifting and it's and it's about just being submissive to the moment and having you know we're always going to have power over you and you just need to submit to what we say and it's yeah. always going to be fluctuating so just accept it you there's another um because you if you feel that the 1984 is overused um i know you're a christian and yes. I'm a pretty new Christian and I have a, a pretty cool preacher. And he gave this sermon recently, um, a, this history that I, just, I wasn't familiar with. Like Carter said, I went to a science and math school. I went to a really great um, state funded uh, you know, boarding school. And then I went to a great university, but I didn't learn a lot about history. I didn't. And um, so anyway, I, I looked this up so I don't get it wrong. He was talking about how Nero um blamed have you heard about this how he blamed this fire that happened he falsely charged the christians with guilt for this fire and then he had all these public confessions and made the christians some of the christians did capitulate and confess mm -hmm. and then still killed them still and killed them afterwards yeah still killed them afterwards and he talked about this um as part of a sermon about you know at some point, how the the only thing that will be required of us is just to have the courage to tell the truth, because mm -hmm. it's much like that scene in, in Star Trek. And in 1984, there's this almost perverse pleasure that tyrants get out of having you say something that, you know, is not true. It's almost like they they some people have deluded themselves and will speak the untruths and they believe them. But it's mm -hmm. almost as if they prefer those of us who who know that it's a lie, they prefer us having to say it because then it humiliates us. It takes away all sense of honor and dignity because we know we're right. speaking lies. And there's, there's that humiliation in that, you know? Right. It's complete submission. I mean, if you, if you know something is false and you say that it's true, 
just because somebody else tells you to say it, uh, then it's complete submission to that person. So yeah, it's it's all about power, like we were saying earlier. And that really, like you said, you don't like to psychologize, but that's really that's really what it is. You know, this idea of uh, making people submit to you and submit to your ideology, and and doing that outwardly and publicly, like uh, the again struggle sessions uh, in Maoism, and you know whether they're guilty or not and you know the, another example is the inquisition like going around when uh, they went around and they rounded up supposed heretics and uh you know people that were just accused and and tortured them until they confessed <laughs> you know made the for basically forced confession and uh, a lot of those people were killed anyway so same kind of same kind of deal but uh it, it's about power it, it that's really what it is about power and then of course stoking fear because uh, nobody else wants to go through that. When they see you go through it, they're like, "Oh man, I'm, yeah. I'm not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to speak the truth now." Did you see what happened yeah. to that guy? No way. So um, it is, it is definitely about exerting power and, and um, spreading fear so that people don't don't push back against you. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I wanted to ask you about your history. Like, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into podcasting? What what made you want to start speaking? Man, oh, it's yeah, it's it's been a crazy kind of journey actually. So I used to be a Democrat, like a lot of like a lot of people. Uh, voted for Obama twice, uh, 2008, 2012, and same. I really did. You? Oh, yeah. So all right, we're in the same boat. So I walked away. Um, but it, I didn't really start. I wasn't really political. I was I was pretty apolitical. Didn't really pay much attention to politics. Um, voted for Obama because of his charisma. And, and let's be honest, that's what it was. Uh, I, I thought he was a great speaker and he seemed like a good dude. So I, I voted for him. Yeah. And that, that was that was the extent of my political expertise. <laughs> He's like but, someone you would want to have some arugula with. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you don't remember that whole thing where they, anyway. But, <laughs> But um, I didn't really start to pay attention to politics until uh, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson in 2016, uh, 2013, sorry. Uh, but when that happened, I realized that the media was so dishonest about the things that were happening. And it really shocked me because I was like, wait a minute, like... Like, why are they telling us this when it's clear that this happened? And I started to really pay attention. And that's when really like Black Lives Matter started lifting up and doing the whole hands up, don't shoot thing. And I was like, like this, this doesn't, it's not adding up. Things aren't adding up. And so I started really doing my own research and really digging into things. And I realized that the, hey, the media is not very honest. <laughs> and they're not very honest about a lot of things. And so that made me ask, like, what else are they being dishonest about? And I started looking into things, started researching and started looking at the Democratic Party. Uh, Trump comes along in 2016 and I see how they treat him. And, you know, I, so I start posting on social media, Facebook and Twitter, uh, just putting my ideas out there, just, you know, saying saying my thoughts and things that were bothering me, things that were bugging me and ended up building up a following that way. Yeah, it's really resonated with people. You know, people were sharing my stuff and people were commenting and, and asking for more, more content. And uh, finally, after being pushed 
to start a podcast uh, last year. I, I finally started one because people were more interested in uh, hearing more of my 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 thoughts in a longer form than a, <laughs> a Facebook post. Cause I, I got, a, I had a bad habit of making these essays on Facebook <laughs> just super, <laughs> super long. And uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I want to try to try it out the podcast and it's been going okay so far. Um, I'm not much, uh, I know I'm, I mean, doing these interviews, but I'm not much of a talker. I'm more of a writer. I like to write and like I'm, my thoughts are better organized in writing than talking, but the podcast has been, it's been, it's been okay. It's been, it's been going pretty well and the response has been good. So yeah, it's been, it's yeah, been an interesting you, journey. I think do that's you write true. Your podcast before you do them? Cause they sound very well thought out. Yes. I, I, it's scripted, uh, for the most part. I, 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 I riff thoughts from time to time. I say riff because I'm a musician. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're playing and you kind of go off, and but I, I riff I riff my thoughts uh, from time to time. But most of it's scripted, and that way I know exactly what I want to talk about, and I have my ideas laid out, and I'm not just rambling, which I have a tendency to do. I was going to say, I think that's pretty common for some podcasters. Not all. Like Carter always talks about how he much prefers to write. And mm. we've interviewed Samuel Say. Do you know who he is? He's a Christian blogger. Um, I don't think so. No. He has a great essay called um, uh, "Social Justice and the and the Bible." I think is the name of it. Mm. Something, something, something. Anyway, he um, he's also said, you know, he much prefers to write, but but yeah. I think because there's a desire and a hunger for uh, for some of these ideas, like you said, people gravitated towards your post. Yeah. Um, that people have been sort of, okay, well then let me just adapt and start doing it in this format that people want to ingest right now, you know? Yeah. And that's really what it was about. That just yeah. trying to get it out there in a different format that people want. Maybe people didn't want to read a three page essay, but they'll, they'll listen to a half hour podcast. So uh, just trying to get the truth out there any way possible. So I'm, I'll, I'll suck it up and, and deal with it <laughs> if I have to. <laughs> Did you experience any fear when you started to post your opinions? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, anytime you put yourself out there, you're you're worried about how it's going to be received, right? Now, I found that I have a bit of a shield uh, with, uh, especially talking about racial issues, because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but my skin's a little bit darker. So <laughs> I know, oh, surprise. I don't. <laughs> Oh, dude. I don't know. It's weird. I should right? change everything so, I've just said. I'm sorry. I, know, that I, I didn't realize. This is really awkward now. But <laughs> I was confused because you showed up on time. <laughs> oh, canceled. Canceled. Okay. I'm going to need the number and address to your employer. And <laughs> I, Hey, man, you're looking at him. You're looking. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. But yeah, I mean, like I said, anytime you put your ideas out there, you're you're worried how how they're going to be received and uh, whether you're on point or not. But you know, the more that I did it, the less apprehensive I became, um, became more comfortable, uh, just you know, comfortable with my own ideas and my own thoughts and my search for truth. Um, and I I try to approach things like I'm like it's like like it is that like it's a search for truth and not like this is exactly what it is and there's no no debate here um 
I'm not always good with that. Sometimes I get <laughs> I get frustrated and I put out posts like that. But I, I for the most part, I try to I try to be explorative with my posts in in um, question things like uh, like is this really what's happening? Um, did the knee on the neck really kill George Floyd? Uh, is what information are we missing? And like I said, challenging the narrative, pushing back on things, and and having that sort of uh, that sort of approach to things. And like I said, the more that I've done it, the more comfortable I've become come doing it, even with the pushback. That's yeah. fine. I like it's that, you said that you're not in Twitter jail. Yeah. I know it's crazy. I, I have been in Twitter jail and Facebook jail before, but uh, yeah, I'm surprised they've they've left me alone for the most part. Uh, yeah, that now I say that, and I'm going to get banned. Thank you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, we're still our unsafe space account on Twitter has been banned since January 11th. So we're still waiting to hear from the authorities. What for? Appeal. Um, they didn't give us an answer for about two months. They didn't tell us why. And then when they did tell us why they said it was for, um, Oh, trying to evade a ban, which we haven't done. We never had multiple accounts or anything, uh -oh. but then we were kind of joking that maybe following the TOS is a way of evading a ban <laughs> if you follow the rules. <laughs> hey, that person get banned the rules. For, for not getting banned. <laughs> Are they They're following the rules? Get them out of here. They're trying to avoid <laughs> the rules. We know you don't want to follow the rules, and you're just doing it to avoid banning. You're just doing it to avoid. It's egregious. How dare you? <laughs> yeah. Well, we're also, uh, yeah, like we said earlier, we're also banned from YouTube oh. at the moment, so. Oh. That's crazy. Yeah. And I've noticed it, it yeah. just doesn't seem to happen to, to those on the left. And yeah, I've, I've tried to see if there's any prominent accounts that on the left that have been banned, even accidentally, accidentally, what will happen? Twitter will come or YouTube will come and say, Oh, we're sorry. It was an accident. It was a mistake, but it only goes one way. It's only one side yeah. that this is happening to. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. I mean, yeah, you want to throw out conspiracy theories, but yeah, it's just kind of interesting. What do you think as a libertarian of the fact that, um, you know, we, the major threat to, we'll say, uh, liberty and individual rights is actually not coming from the government per se. I mean, part of it is coming from the government, but you have these large private companies doing a lot of the heavy lifting for what, you know, if George Orwell were writing about today, knowing the technology that exists, he would probably imagine that the government was the one censoring people on Twitter or, mm. you know, you know, big brother was, you know, Google was the big brother arm of the government and it was the government doing this, but it's not. Uh, yeah. How do you, what do you think of that as a libertarian in terms of what we can do? Yeah. Well, it's, it, it really comes down to cronyism, right? And we say that it's private companies, but it's not really because you say, yeah, it was kind of the government. Yeah, it is. The government's all intertwined with this stuff. And, you know, you have a private company like Twitter or Facebook, and you think on the surface as a libertarian that, yeah, they should be allowed to do what they want to do in theory. But if they have a monopoly on on the market uh, that's government induced, then that changes things. I mean, if the government's giving them money, if the government's subsidizing these things, uh, or giving them tax breaks, or whatever it might be, uh, and in limiting limiting marketplace competition, then we have more of an issue, because it is the government uh, censoring speech by proxy, 
uh, using these using these private companies to to uh, push forward a, a certain ideology. And we talked before about how it's a mistake to uh, not have a organization making decisions that doesn't that pays no price for being wrong. And that's similar to what's happening whenever a a corporation is quote unquote too big to fail, right? Um, if they're too big to fail, then they're going to do things. They know the government is going to come in and save them, or you know the government is going to help them achieve whatever goals they want to achieve. They're going to do things they wouldn't otherwise do in a competitive market. And so that's going to create all kinds of problems in, in the market economy. So it's not really a free market, and it's not really capitalism at work. Uh, so the solution, of course, is to get the government out. That's my solution for everything. Get the government out. <laughs> like, oh, there's a problem. Get the government out, and then we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Because if the government's not involved in this stuff, there's Facebook and Twitter's not going to be doing that stuff if they don't have a fallback. If they, if they're, if they, if there's another, vi if there's five or ten viable social media platforms that are, you know, just as big, just as just as powerful, uh, they're not going to be able to. But it, it really comes down to uh, competition and choice, and that's really what the priority needs to be. So is, is there adequate competition in the market where people can make the choice uh, between businesses? Uh, it's like, okay, you want to discriminate against me? You, you don't want to bake my cake? Then I'm going to go over here into this cake shop and buy a cake from them. And as long as that choice is available, then, then yes, company, private companies should be allowed to do what they, what they want to do. And I, I, this almost sounds like a tautology, but I think a lot of conservatives don't realize that increased government regulation is a decrease in the free market. Um, mm. And so the, the free yeah. market argument, you know, if you've got Twitter and Facebook, who are, by the way, asking for heavy regulation, uh, that heavy regulation, a high regulatory environment just means there are fewer players and they're bigger players and it's more of an oligarchy. Yeah. And I think, you know, you started, I, in one of your podcasts, you said a lot of the downfall that started with, Obama's election in, did, in many ways yeah. culturally the, the race war started there and I think uh, the other thing that started there was I think an obvious it became obvious to a lot of people that there is an oligarchy there's an oligarchical component to uh, our system right now in that you've got these highly regulated banks that were just bailed out mm. um, they're just bailed out and, yeah. and and they socialism they were able to use socialism for their losses for them but for not for their profit <laughs> right right yeah and i mean if you if you can imagine starting a business and knowing that you can do you can stretch the boundaries you can do certain things that you wouldn't do otherwise because you know that you that you you won't go out of business you know that you have a fail safe uh, so that you can take certain risks and do things, do certain things that may may be unsavory, uh, because you have that fail safe. Uh, if you don't have that fail safe, then you wouldn't do those things. And so when you when you kind of uh, zoom into and make it about yourself, and you think about running your own business and how it would be if uh if you knew that your business couldn't fail like what kind of things you might do if your business wouldn't fail then it, it maybe makes more sense but yeah you're like you said people don't understand like when in a regulatory environment it makes it harder for uh for people to start businesses for people to maintain businesses uh it makes it more expensive uh and you know the it inherently reduces competition so if the 
if the free market relies on competition in order to thrive, then regulations inherently um, suppress the free market. And that's just the, that's the reality of it. And yeah, people don't, again, people don't understand the connection between policy and outcomes and, you know, they don't always make that connection. So. Right. And so they, and then they have the balls to blame the free market when the 2008 financial crisis hits. It's like, oh yeah, look at capitalism. Like, listen, <laughs> it's not, it's not capitalism. It's the, that meme where the guy sticks the stick in his front wheel of his bike and he's like <laughs> laying over yeah. grabbing his knees like, oh, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I have kind of a big picture question for you. Oh um, man. Big what, picture. All right. Yeah. What do you think <laughs> is the biggest existential threat that we're currently facing as a society in the States. And for anyone who's concerned about the trajectory that we're on, um, what is the antidote? Like what can, what can you do as an average person? Uh, yeah, that is a big picture question. Yeah. Hey, pointing out the problems <laughs> is easy. <laughs> pointing out the problems is easy. I found uh, pointing out the solutions, that's that's harder, especially for the the average everyday person. Uh, the biggest existential mm -hmm. threat I see right now is critical race theory. Um, and I, you could even zoom out and just and just look at the end goal and say collectivism or uh, you know, even democratic socialism or whatever they want to call it. Uh, but critical race theory as the spearhead right now, is it infiltrating all aspects of our society and our institutions? Um, it's really getting a foothold everywhere and it's causing all kinds of issues and destruct, leaving destruction in its wake. That I see as the, as the most significant present threat at the moment. Now, what people can do uh, to push back on that, that's a little trickier because uh, we're in a position where there are real costs to pushing back against this stuff. And that's not lost on me. Like I said, my skin color gives me a little bit of a shield. So I can talk about this stuff a little bit freer than, than a lot of other people do. And I've had, I've had actually had some of my friends come to me and say, man, I'm, I'm afraid to say anything because, uh, you know, like the mob could come after me. I could lose my job. Uh, you know, I could get attacked. My family could get attacked, all these different things. And those are legitimate fears. You know, that's, that's not just uh, paranoia. That's, I mean, it's really happening to people. Uh, I, I read about a guy that lost his job just for questioning whether uh, George Floyd was murdered, whether that was that, whether the narrative was accurate. Like he didn't even say that, like, it wasn't accurate. He just questioned it. He just said, like, I don't know, like, maybe it's not like, like, maybe we should look at it. I'm like, no, you're, you're fired. So there are real world consequences to this stuff. But at the same time, if we see this stuff being pushed, particularly in education, then we need to go, we have to go to the school board meetings and we have to push back against it. Um, there's strength in numbers. So the biggest thing I think we need to do is uh, we have to be there to support each other and 
people have to know that they have support because I think a lot of people are afraid to speak out because they don't think that anybody will come to their defense. And that's happened before where somebody cancel culture comes after them, the mob comes after them, and then nobody, nobody comes to save them. And so, and so when other people see that, like I was talking about before with the, the spreading the fear, I, you know, the people aren't going to want to speak out because they feel like there's no support. So, we have to be more vocal and we have to be a little bit braver. And unfortunately we have to be willing to take the hits when they come. Uh, and that's going, that's just going to be part of the sacrifice that, that that's going to have to be made to, to combat this stuff. Because I tell you, the critical race theory people are not holding anything back. They don't care. They're, they're steamrolling everything. And so if nobody's going to stand up to them, then they're just going to take over everything. And it's already, it's already, infiltrating like every aspect of our society. Thankfully, uh, there are some organizations pushing back so that you can get linked up with those. Like there's uh, FAIR, fairforall.org, I believe is the, web, is the website. Uh, people like Christopher Rufo, uh, I think Megan Kelly is a part of it. Um, uh, Ayanna Hersey Ali. There's a, there's there's a lot of different people yeah. that are involved involved with with this organization that are really pushing back against the critical race theory stuff. And so if you if you're afraid to push back yourself and to be vocal yourself, at least link up with that organization and volunteer or donate or or whatever. But we just need to we need to mobilize and we need to be more organized and focused. Because I, I do. I honestly believe that critical race theory is the single uh, greatest threat to our society at the moment. Now, you have a degree in psychology, right? Yeah, it's a bachelor's degree. Yeah. Okay, good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to solve a problem. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so I've had it. No, uh, no. Um, <laughs> so, what you lay down on the couch? Where's my notebook? Yeah. Mm, yes. So my mom. No. Uh, the what I'd like to ask is, if I look at the just from the outside, I step back and I look at the left. Mm. They have been able to for generations, generations, maintain uh, real energy and pressure, um, almost as if we're in. They're almost they almost always have this feeling that we're in constant crisis about some freaking thing or another. They're always mobilized. They're always pressuring, and. It seems like the I'll for I won't say the right, but I'll even say libertarian and right, non-left, the non-left portion of the population. It seems like they're just now waking up from this slumber that has been going on for <laughs> generations, and they're like, "Hey, how did we get here?" Uh, and yeah. Yeah. my concern is like, I think the answers lie in really, really long-term battles. This is not a we're going to solve it in five years by yelling loudly. Right. And how do you get a, how do you maintain that energy psychologically for any length of time? I don't know how the left does it. I'm fascinated by it. I, that's, that's a great question. And I've talked about that before, uh, where it seems like, you know, the left are willing to, you know, go out in the thousands and thousands into the streets and protest. Uh, about just the sl the smallest things. It doesn't even matter what it is. Like they're out there and or and a lie. Back. Even yeah. it could be a lie, and they'll go protest. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Yeah, they're out there, burning stuff, looting stuff. They're they're yeah. They have 
<laughs> Whereas, yeah, in the right and libertarians, like we'll get on Twitter and we'll we'll complain about it. And that's that's the extent of it. But I and I wonder if it's not just the just the difference in personality, just the difference in the way that people view that we view the world. Uh, where you have the collectivist mindset versus the individualist kind of mindset. And, you know, as the individualist, we're kind of just like, uh, well, uh, I, I have my own responsibilities and I have my personal responsibilities and, you know, I'm not going to go out here and, and cause a bunch of trouble. Uh, it, whereas <clears throat> the collectivist mindset is the ends justify the means and we're going to go out here and we're going to do whatever it takes to reach our goal. So it, it's, it, it may be a different way that people view the world that that causes that but i mean it's a definite issue because yeah the, the right just doesn't do a great job at mobilizing and um you know just getting out and put like you said putting the pressure on things uh outside of social media and we do a good job on on twitter i think but that outside of that yeah i wish if we had a stronger party too a political party uh our political political party and the republicans they're just uh, I, I don't know. They're, <laughs> they're, I feel they're like pretty, some pretty impotent. Thinking, though, yeah. On the right, there's some magical thinking from libertarians and, and and Republicans about. Well, I just want to leave people alone, so I'm just going to withdraw and leave people alone, and I'll be left alone. And it's almost as if there's no cognizant. They're not cognizant of the fact that you need community. You can't be an individual and fight a collective. You need a community. It can be a community right. of individuals. You can all be individualists and be in a community together, fighting together. You sound like a minarchist now. You can't do it man. by your own. You can't withdraw. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. So you sound like a minarchist now. <laughs> no. A voluntary community can get... have, we don't need guys with guns to have, I'm, I mean, we I'm, guys I'm with guns are nice, but I mean, we don't need a government. <laughs> but yeah, well, you're right, though. You're right, though. Uh, the, the individualist kind of idea. Uh, it, it creates a kind of paradox where we're like, well, everybody should be individuals and should leave each other alone. And then the collectivists take advantage of that to infringe on everybody else's rights. So it's like, oh, right, well, they we, believe no one should be left alone ever. Right. Exactly. So it's like, well, we'll give you the freedom to now uh, now oppress everybody else. So there you go. Uh, it, what, what was that quote where uh, he said? I when whenever I am lower than you, I I ask for freedom because that is according to your principles. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, no. Whenever I'm whenever I'm below you, and let me, let me make sure I get it right. Whenever I'm below you, I ask for freedom because that is according to your principles. Whenever I'm above you, I take your freedom because that is according to my principles. So is this idea is that you have this like power play, this power dynamic? So like like I said, it's a paradox because like, well, we're going to give you freedom. We want liberty. We want all this individual liberty. And that gives you the liberty to now be a collectivist and to take away my liberty. So yeah, it's paradoxical. But uh, we need to figure out how to be a little bit collectivist and and uh, like you said, be on a more voluntary basis, but to be a little bit collectivist and to mobilize and to, and to push back against the stuff. Otherwise, we are going to be, be steamrolled. I'm wondering if it's a conflation of terms, because I would disagree with what you just said, which is that we need to be a little bit collectivist. I think there's a, I think they've duped us, maybe because they've owned universities for, since the beginning of time, it seems like. Uh, <laughs> like, collectivism and community are not the same thing. 
Um, and individualism and narcissism aren't the same, or isolationism aren't the same thing, right? Individualism is a recognition that philosophically individual rights are primary and, and the, the, there are no, quote, collective rights, right? And collectivism is this idea that philosophically the collective has rights and individual is uh, merely a tool for use by the collective. But I think a lot of individualists have been convinced that individualism means you can't have community, you can't like gather together to do something as one big unit where you all agree and have a have a powerful community. They've even taken the word comrade and turned it into well that that's a Marxist term, that's a collectivist term. You can't have yeah. you can't call someone a comrade. You can't have camaraderie uh, yeah. if, without being a collectivist. Um, and I, I'm and. I'm wondering because because you're not the only person that has said something to those that effect, which I've pushed back on, which is this like, well, we need some collectivism. I don't think we need any collectivism. I think we need community and we need an understanding that as far as that's we need the individuals we need that freedom so that we can cooperate together. I don't yeah. want to live on a desert island. I do want to live with, in a group of people. I do want to live in a community. I want to cooperate with people. I want to do it voluntarily. Yeah, I, I, I'll concede that point, and I, I will agree with you. And I think cooperation is probably a better term than, than collectivism. Uh, but yeah, then that's essentially what I meant when I said that, because it's, it, it's this idea that even though we are individualists, there are uh, situations where we do need group cooperation and we do need uh, that community. And, you know, they, and that's really how I approach politics at large too, where this idea and why I'm a minarchist, where I, I, I view the view the world as certain, there's certain things that are better done as a community, as a group through voluntary cooperation. And when you do things through voluntary cooperation, uh, you know, some, a lot of times a government is the way, is the best way to do that. And like national defense is a, is a, a prime example where it's very hard for, you know, I, I think Milton Friedman made this point where it's very hard for one person in Ohio to go to war against China. Uh, well, a person in Nebraska is not, you know, and so it, it, to have that voluntary cooperation through government, you know, very limited government uh, in order to do things that are better done as a group, then that's still an individualist and libertarian ideal. But yeah, there's, I, I agree with you on the, on the point and I'll concede that on collectivism. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you concede the point. I, I see just... I concede it. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I just, I guess, I guess the reason, the only reason I'm bringing it up is uh, I'm frustrated at us. I'm frustrated at the individualists because we all seem to have this like isolationist mentality superimposed over individualism. And it's not, it's, it's got, that's got failure written all over it because just like a guy in Ohio can't wage war against China, uh, a guy in Montana in a shack, well, maybe Montana's a bad choice given, uh, where, uh, <laughs> where the Unabobber lived, a guy in Iowa, in Idaho <laughs> in a shack can't wage war against the rest of society very effectively, right? Yeah. Um, he can't wage war, he can't wage a culture war by himself. It takes the, the entire, an entire group of people. Right. Um, and you, I've heard you say before, you need to have each other's back. And I just, I feel like that message can't be repeated enough and more yeah. loudly enough. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's, it's strength in numbers. And if it's just one guy in Montana, 
pushing back against critical race theory. It's obviously not going to be effective. But if we have a world, you know, nationwide, worldwide network of people that are speaking the truth and aren't afraid to stand up for things and, and have each other's back, then we're going to be far more effective. So, yeah, I, I like the word cooperation. Uh, let's let's go with that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Leonidas, I wanted to um, uh, we sometimes joke that I'm the optimistic one and Carter's the pessimistic one, although that's not true. You know how we become these. <laughs> We become these caricatures of ourselves, and you know, yeah. I have pessimistic days too. However, I do usually try to end on a somewhat positive note, and because I have a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, on your podcast. Who it's why I asked that question earlier about what can the average person do? Because we sometimes hear from people who are feeling disillusioned or looking for inspiration. So, um, for anyone who's looking at the state of the world and feeling, um, feeling that that sort of uh, isolation or feeling despair, what are some things that give you hope? What are some things that you look to that are that inspire you? How do you have a positive outlook? Yeah, um, there I have I will say I've had plenty of days where I'm in that pessimistic mode where I'm like, man, like I don't know what we're gonna do here. I don't know where we're gonna go from here. And it just seems like we're surrounded by insanity, you know, like, and, and that's hard to deal with sometimes. So I get that. I empathize. It. I empathize with it. But I, I think just knowing, knowing that uh, I, I'm speaking the truth, like I'm knowing that I'm connected to reality and I'm grounded in reality doesn't mean I'm always right. doesn't mean I always have the right perspective, but to know that I'm working and seeking, seeking truth and that I see other people around me doing the same, uh, that gives me energy. That gives me, that gives me life. And, um, of course you want to read and you want to watch, watch videos, uh, from people who are like-minded, who, who are speaking the truth. Uh, you know, Thomas Sowell is a great, is a, is a great fallback. I like to go back to his books and read, and he really gives perspective and really, really helps you, uh, make sense of things, you know, like really makes, helps you like wrap your head around uh, what's happening. Shelby still is another one. Uh, you, you'll read some of that stuff and you'll say like, Oh man, like I didn't think of it that way. And, and it'll open up your eyes and then you're, and then all of a sudden you're rejuvenated and you're ready to go back to battle because, uh, you have new weapons. You're, you know, you have this new outlook, new perspective, uh, or just shifted perspective. And and you're ready to go fight another another day, and that's really that's, you take it one day at a time, uh, and you know it's like we were saying at the beginning, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. Uh, we're not going to win this thing overnight. Uh, we're not going to take back the culture overnight because it's been years and years and years of building to this point. So. Um, one of the analogies I love to use is building a wall. So, you know, you, you don't go out and you just have a wall, like you go out with a brick and you lay that brick as perfectly as you can. And, uh, the next day you go out with another brick, you lay that brick as perfectly as you can. And you keep doing that day after day after day. And eventually you have a wall. And that's how I, that's how I like to approach it. And I like to think about it that like each day is, you know, we, we count the small victories and we keep fighting and keep pushing and you keep reminding yourself that we're, we are on the, we're on the right side of truth here. So keep pushing. We're actually on the right side of history, not them. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> Great message. Yeah, not them. Yeah, we're on the right side of history. But I mean, yeah. So we're going to do a, um, a little post. We're trying something new. If you guys are watching the episode uh, and, and you've watched all the way to the end, we're going to try something new where we're doing uh, like a, a frivolity segment. That's just for our subscribers. We're going to be putting it up on levels. And so we're going to switch over to that now. But before we leave, could you tell people, we'll have it in the, the show description too, but tell people where they can find you online if they want to contact you. Yeah, you can find me on social media at Leonidas Johnson, uh, L-E-O-N-Y-D-U-S Johnson. And uh, my podcast is called Informed Dissent. And you can find it on any major podcast platform, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts, it'll it'll be on there. And then my website is uh, leonidasjohnson.com. So definitely check that out. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. This has been a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate you. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy. So go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. The following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. For your own safety, and to avoid further spread of contagion, if you have been in recent contact with any of these individuals, please report to your nearest Good Citizen Treatment Center immediately. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Remember, your uninformed opinion matters. We couldn't destroy everything and rebuild Utopia without it. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. <laughs>